Each spring, Pensacola Christian College hosts the Enrichment Retreat designed for pastors, ministry leaders, and church staff to enjoy a time of rest and to be refreshed by the Word of God. Today's message was from a past Enrichment Retreat keynote speaker. Visit enrichmentretreat.com for details or to learn more about the upcoming retreat. Romans chapter 1, I do want you to keep your Bible open, as always, and we're going to look at a couple verses together, uh, beginning at verse number 16, just for now, but then we're going to come back to uh, the rest of the chapter here in just a bit. So Romans chapter 1, let's look at the very famous uh, verse number 16, where the Bible says these words, uh, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. What a testimony. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why, Paul? For, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone. Do you see that? It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. I mean from beginning to end it's faith. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written. And here's that great quotation from Habakkuk. The just shall live by faith. And using these verses as my text verses, but then going back to verse 1 and bringing us right up to verse 17, I'd like to preach a message tonight entitled, The Power of the Gospel. And Father, I do pray that you would quiet our hearts in these moments. As we talk about that which is nearest and dearest to your heart, that which makes an eternal difference in the hearts and lives of people, the very reason why we're here, the commission that we have received and collectively that we endeavor to obey. And God, tonight, I pray that you would use this time-honored passage of Scripture to grip us in some new way. I pray that as we examine a familiar road, And walk down a familiar path that you would help us to zone in in a way perhaps that we've not done so before. I pray that your Holy Spirit would do a work tonight that only he can do. A work on the inside. A work of conviction. A work of illumination. A work of equipping. Oh God, tonight I pray that you would help us for these moments just to be captured by the truth of this wonderful passage of Scripture. Would you please bless, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk about the powerful gospel, and I'll probably refer to it that way throughout the message, the powerful gospel. I want to show you four aspects of the powerful gospel here in Romans chapter 1. In verses 1 through 7, we're going to look at a summarization of the gospel. Because in verses 1 through 7, what we find is the Apostle Paul, as he writes this longest letter, or one of the longest letters, I'm not sure if 1 Corinthians is longer but by words, but one of the longest letters of the Apostle Paul's ministry, he summarizes really where he's going and what the gospel is in verses 1 through 7. I want us to see that, because I think that summary is really going to help us to understand the scope of everything else we're going to say. So the summarization of the gospel, verses 1 through 7, and then we're going to look at verses 8 through 10 for just a couple minutes, not long, and we'll talk about the celebration of the gospel. Because what the Apostle Paul does is he talks about the gospel's effect on other people. And I think it's important as we think about the potential of the gospel, the people that need to be saved, the, the, the countries that need to be reached, the people in your town that need to be gathered in for the gospel's sake, I think it's important sometimes to pause 
and to celebrate what the gospel has already done in the lives of other people. So we'll talk about the summarization in verses 1 through 7, then the celebration in verses 8 through 10. Then I want to talk about the obligation of the gospel, and that'll be familiar ground for you and me. But starting in verse number 11 and working our way through verse number 15, I want to talk about the obligatory nature of the gospel. And sometimes we don't say enough about obligation. I think in this grace age, and it's wonderful uh, to talk about grace, and it's wonderful to use terms like I'm grace-driven and I'm gospel-centered. That's wonderful. I'm, I'm all for that. But, but, but love and grace are not mutually exclusive to obligation. They go together. And so what does it mean to be obligated? And what is the obligation of the gospel as it comes to a, a, a preacher like you and like me, or a Christian like you and like me? So the obligation of the gospel. And then finally, as we near the end of the message, we'll talk about, obviously, the proclamation of the gospel. Because the gospel is not, it just cannot be effective until it's proclaimed. And so the proclamation of the gospel is where we'll uh, land tonight. So look, please, if you would, at verse number one. And let's talk about what I'll call the summarization of the gospel. Romans chapter one and verse number one. Well, the Bible says these words, Paul a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, apostolos, the sent one, the emissary, separated unto, now watch this, the gospel of God. Is it not interesting that the gospel is featured first in the book that Paul writes to the Romans? And so the summarization of the gospel we're about to see. But that, that's the way the book starts. Sometimes we think that Romans 1.16 is kind of the way by which the gospel is introduced in the book of Romans. But that's not the case. No, Roman, Romans chapter 1, 1 through 17 is building up to this declaration by the apostle Paul to say, hey, I'm not ashamed. And that declaration is built upon all of the things that we'll talk about until we get there. So verse number one, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. And when I say the word gospel, you automatically think about two words, don't you? Gospel is what? Talk to me. Good news. You got it. Good news. Matter of fact, we talk about things like gospel truth, but gospel doesn't mean truth. Gospel means good news. That's what gospel means. Matter of fact, euangelion, the word for gospel, was not a word coined for scripture. You know that, right? Gospel, euangelion, was a word that was very common in the Roman Empire. And it was common in relationship to Caesar himself. Matter of fact, it was common to Caesar worship. You know that when Augustus Caesar, the first Caesar, came to rule, uh, that Caesar worship came along with it. And now all of the Roman Empire big cities, like Ephesus, like Smyrna, like Thyatira, like Caesarea Philippi, uh, a n- number of other cities around the world, they built temples to worship the emperor. And uh, when the emperor said anything or anything of value happened in the emperor's life, a son was born, uh, some victory was won, then the euangelion, uh, the, the good news would be shared by a herald in all the cities of the world to say how great Caesar was and how great and awesome Caesar is. So listen to this. I, I read this inscription that was found in a place called PN Turkey uh, back in 6 BC. It was on a government building. Here's what it says. The most divine Caesar. Listen to this. The most divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward dissolution, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aura. 
Caesar, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality. All the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year. Whereas the providence, which has regulated our whole existence, has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving to us the emperor Augustus, who being sent to us and our descendants as a savior, has put an end to war, has set all things in order, and whereas having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. Does that sound vaguely familiar to some other king? Does that sound vaguely familiar to some other gospel? Yet that was the context for the word gospel. So understand that when Jesus, or when John the Baptist came, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, boy, that was an in-your-face message. No wonder the delegation from Jerusalem was a little bit nervous. I mean, because they have their cozy relationship with the, with, with the Herods. They had their cozy relationship with Pontius Pilate. They didn't want to upset Rome. And now some vagabond preacher is saying, there's a, a new herald. There's a new euangelion. There's a new kingdom. There's a new king. Hey, that's insurrection. And ultimately, that was the indictment they brought against Jesus to crucify him. Was it not? And so this makes a whole lot of sense. Now understand that Paul is writing Rome. He's writing the people in Rome. They live in the very seat of it. They live in the lion's den. They're there where Caesar does his stuff. And he's saying, listen, I want to talk about the good news. Not the good news about what Emperor so-and-so did. Not the good news about what Emperor so-and-so is going to do. But the good news about the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. That's a good way to get yourself killed. By the way, it did get him killed. So understand the gospel in miniature in verses 1 through 7. What do I see? I see at least four aspects of the the summarization of the gospel. First of all, I see the servant of the gospel. Do you see that in verse number 1? Paul, a servant, a doulos, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle separated unto the gospel of God. So, Paul, I am a servant. That's the way I view myself. Uh, I, I, I have been saved. I have been made free. I've been set at liberty. And now I choose to be voluntarily the slave of Jesus Christ. By the way, that's your prerogative as well. You're saved, you're free, but you're free to serve. You're saved, you're free. Only use not your liberty for an occasion of the flesh, but by love, serve one another. That's exactly what Paul did. I recognize, I know who I am. I wonder tonight, do you know who you are? Because your identity will drive your behavior. Do you know? Do you remind yourself, hey, I am a servant of God. I'm a servant of God. I'm an apostle. I've been called of God. That's why I'm separated unto the gospel of God. God has given me this special assignment uh, to be a curator of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's my job. And don't you like that term separated unto? Because separated unto really connotes the idea of Pharisee. It's the same root word. And what was Paul? He was a Pharisee of the what? Of the Pharisees. But if anybody was a separated one, it was the Apostle Paul. Uh, He didn't do that. He didn't do this. He did that. He was fastidious about keeping the law of God, was he not? And so now he's saying, listen, I was that. I was separated from. I was separated from. But let me tell you what defines my life right, right now. I'm not defined by what I'm separated from now. I'm defined by what I'm separated unto. My whole life is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what, what, a, what a statement. By the way, that's you. 
And that ought to be me. Servant, the servant of the gospel. But watch this, number two. Not only do I see the servant of the gospel, I see the source of the gospel. The Bible tells us right here in verse number one. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel. Now watch it. Don't miss the, the prepositional phrase, of God. That's big. You know, that tells me, that tells me where the gospel comes from. And sometimes we, get, sometimes we give God the Father a bad rap. Sometimes we kind of create this tension, like, you know, Jesus really loved people, but God's really mad at people. Jesus really wants to save people, but God really wants to lightning bolt people. Is that what the Bible teaches? Not at all. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so, no, God, this was God's plan. God had the plan for the gospel. The the gospel was not man's invention. Man could have invented that. And the gospel wasn't God putting up a, a, it was the triune God's plan for you and me. And want to understand the Bible in four words? We understand the Bible in four words. Creation, chapters one and two of Genesis. The fall, that's one chapter. It didn't take as long, right? Creation, the fall, and then all the way back here, Revelation 21, 22, consummation. What's in the middle? Redemption. Redemption. That's the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is God's redemptive plan. That's the story of the Bible. Creation, fall, there's, there's culmination. Uh, there it is. Uh, of all things, where there, but in the, in the middle, it's God's progressive revelation of himself. Search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Lo, in the volume of the book, it's written of me, Jesus said. The whole story, it's about him. Hey, I love you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to make a way. It's all about the gospel. So who's the source of the gospel? God is. God is the source of the gospel. I am the servant of the gospel. God is the source of the gospel. Number three. Number three, what is the subject of the gospel? I think you know. Uh, Jesus Christ. The subject of the, the gospel. Jesus is the gospel personified. We know technically the gospel is the good news that Jesus uh, died, that he was buried, that he rose again, according to the scriptures. Paul taught us that in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. And so who is the subject of the gospel? Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's not a creed that we quote. The gospel is not a statement of faith that we sign. No, the gospel is an event that happened that involved a person who died for you and me in my place. That's the point. And so the point of the gospel is that there's a servant. That's, that's me. And a servant's job is just to tell it. Just to tell it. it. It has a source, and that's God. But the subject of the gospel is none other than Jesus Christ. And watch what it says about Jesus in verse number 2. First of all, in verse number 2, parenthetically, The gospel was promised afford by his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. So this was the plan of God. We talked about that. But watch verse number three, the subject, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now watch what the Bible says about Jesus. He was made, huh, he was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. And in other words, uh, Jesus, uh, the Lagos, the word of God, the eternal son of God became man at a point in time. That's an amazing thing. That God, watch this, became man. Now you understand that back in the Greek language, back in those days, logos was a term everyone was, was familiar with. Logos meant so the, 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 the divine wisdom. Logos meant the, the, the divine reason. 
Uh, Lagos was kind of like their Yoda, right? I mean, there was way out. They didn't know. Uh, Lagos was their version of intelligent design. We know there's something out there. We don't know what it is, but there's some explanation for everything, right? And what John said when he wrote the book of John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, let me tell you who that divine reason is. Let me tell you who divine wisdom is. Let me tell you what intelligent design is. It is Jesus Christ. God became man. And the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The, the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Hey, that's divine. That's the eternal Son of God. And the Word was made flesh. And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so what's the Bible teaching? The Bible's teaching that he is all God, all man. Not half God, half man. Not, to, not all God looks like man, but all God, all man, hypostatic union. That's the only way by which you and I can be saved. It's God's only plan, and Jesus is the subject of the gospel. That's what it's saying. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, he was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, but declared to be the son of God, watch this, with power. What was that declaration? The Bible says, according to the spirit of holiness, he is God, holy, righteous, good, just, but by the resurrection from the dead. What was God's exclamation point on the gospel? (laughs) The resurrection. Now listen, it was finished on the cross. It was finished on the cross, but if there was no resurrection, then all of that that was just words. Anyone can say it is finished, but not anybody can get up from a grave. And the point was, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the emphatic exclamation point on every single thing that Jesus said about himself. It's true, it's true, it's true. All capitals, big old exclamation point. Jesus is the subject of the gospel. And so what do we have? We have a servant. We have a source. We have a subject. But then watch this. Lastly, under, don't get your hopes up. When I say lastly, that's the last point on the first big point. <laughs> see how your people feel now? You see that? Yeah, take that. Na 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 na. Look at verse number five. Let's talk about the scope of the gospel. The Bible says, by whom? See that, verse 5? By whom? By Christ. We have received grace and apostleship. Isn't that wonderful? We receive grace and apostleship. Grace is God's unmerited favor that gives me both the desire and the ability to do God's will. God equips us. God equips us. But then he calls us. See, grace without apostleship is like a river without, bear, without borders, without, without, without banks. But, 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 but apostleship without grace is like a banks with no water. No, God gives us equipping and he gives us a calling. And the apostle Paul said, he gave me grace and apostleship for obedience. And not just me. He says we. The apostle Paul's writing from Corinth. He's got a group of people with him. They've gathered some money to take to the poor saints at Jerusalem. They're on the third missionary journey. They're going to make their way down to Jerusalem. They're going to stay there for just a brief period of time. He says in Romans 15, pray for me that things go well. And that I don't get in trouble and nothing bad happens. And I can get to Rome quickly. Guess what? They must not have prayed. Because <laughs> it didn't work out that way. I mean, they went to Jerusalem, and he got arrested, and and he got falsely accused, and he was in Caesarea for two years, and finally he appeals to Rome and uh, to Caesar, and he gets on a boat, and uh, shipwrecks, and snake bites, and one year later, he finally gets there. And when he gets there, he gets under house arrest for two years. And things don't always work out the way you think they're going to work out, right? 
What's the point? The point here is God is at work. And the grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. There's the scope of the gospel. There's the scope of the gospel. That God wants us to be obedient to the faith, the body of truth that we have received. Have you received a body of truth? Do you know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Do you know that the Bible is true? Do you know that heaven is real? Do you know that the, the gospel is powerful? Do you know that? Do you, have you received a body of truth faithfully handed down to you by others? Then you have to be, obey that body of truth. And obedience to the faith is an obedience to tell other people. So the scope of the, of the gospel is obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. That's why you have a missions program. That's why you spend money you don't have on missions conferences. That's why you take missions trips. And that's why, we, that, that's why Brother Dwight and others that are going to the 1040 window, we do the best we can to help them. Why? Because the Bible says, among all nations, among all nations. That's the scope of the gospel. Till everyone is heard. Till everyone is heard. Go you therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them. And so, obedience to the faith among all nations. But here's the big why. We talk about what. We talk about where. But here's the big why. For his name. Do you see that? Don't miss it. Verse number six, verse number five rather, for his name. That's the scope of the gospel. That's what keeps us going. We do what we do, not for Twitter likes. We do what we do, not for Facebook follows. We do what we do, not for handshakes and backslaps. We do what we do for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's why we do it. And so that's the scope The scope of the gospel is there's still people that need to be saved. There's still people that need to be reached. And until that happens, let's stay at it. It's a summarization of the gospel. Look at verses 6 and 7 to wind up this first point. Among whom are you also the called of Jesus Christ? Don't you love how the apostle Paul does that? He said, by the way, you're in too. By the way, I'm talking to you too, he said. This is my call, this is the scope of my calling, and this is what we're doing, and this is what we understand, but by the way, you've been called to. And verse number seven, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The summarization of the gospel. Consider this number two tonight, real quickly. Not only do I see the summarization of the gospel, but I see the celebration of the gospel, and I love this. Just a little parenthetical thought in my message, verses 8 through 10, what I'll call the celebration of the gospel. Would you look at it, please, in verse number 8, where the Bible says first. I love words like that because that helps us to understand priority in writing. First, 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 the Apostle Paul says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. But, but watch now the, the subject of his thanksgiving. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. So, so uh, specifically, Paul, what about the Roman believers are you thankful for? Well, he tells us that I'm thankful, verse number 8, for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. I love that. I'm thankful that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Now, he's got a lot of things to talk to them about. I mean, this letter is full of doctrine. We know that. For, uh, chapters 1 through 11, all the indicatives. And uh, ch- chapter 12 through 16, all the imperatives. And uh, we, we know that for a season, all the Jews were expelled from Rome. And when that expulsion took place, that's, that's by the way, when Priscilla and Aquila met Paul in Corinth. And, and now you've got a church in Rome that doesn't have any Jews in it. So it's going to kind of adopt more of a Gentile kind of feel in the church. And then the Jews go back to Rome after five years. 
peers. They don't feel at home in their church. A little bit of a schism. Where's the, where, where is the, where is the, the, uh, the union between a Jewish and Gentile body? I mean, Paul has got some work cut out for him in this letter. But before he goes down any of those roads, he says, I just want to intentionally express my gratitude for the fact that your salvation testimony resonates. You know, sometimes in our churches, we got a lot of ground to cover. Sometimes in our church, we, we, we don't have a, an, enough services in a week to cover all the things. Man, we got to do another thing on child rearing. Believe me, we need to do another thing on, did you see those? Do another thing. We got to do another thing on marriage. We got to do another thing on finances. I mean, we got to do, we have all these subjects and all these topics. And I want to be in an Old Testament book and I want to be in a New Testament book. And I can do some of the teenagers. And sometimes we just kind of have all these things we want to do. And if we're not careful, we get to a place in our ministry where our people kind of never measure up, right? And sometimes we just need to stop and say, I'm grateful for your story in the gospel. I'm grateful for the fact that your faith resonates. There's a man in our church, he just, just moved. His name is, his name is uh, Grant. And Grant's a blessing. He comes in, he, he can't always come, he's very disabled, He'll come in his wheelchair and sit in the back. And I always make it a point to go to Grant. Now, Grant told me one day early on when I first met him, he said, Pastor, I really can't do anything. Can't do much. I just try to come to church. I kind of feel like a bump on the log. I knew he was struggling with that. And so I make it a point when I see Grant at church. And he, he he just moved, so I don't see him anymore. But every week I'd go back and say, Grant, let me tell you something. You preach a sermon Every week. And it's loud. It's loud. And people walk by you and they see your faithfulness. And they see your love for Christ. And they see your testimony. They see, hey, I'm telling you, Grant, your words don't resonate, but your faith is screaming loudly. People need to hear that. The Apostle Paul wrote the Thessalonian, Thessalonian believers, and he was worried about them. And Timothy had gone up to visit, came back down, said, they're doing great, Paul. Paul said, I know. I know. I've been down here in Corinth. Everyone that's coming through town has said, hey, those people up in Macedonia, they're having revival, and it's starting with that church at Thessalonica. Hey, your faith is sounding out all throughout all of Macedonia, and indeed more and more. That's what, hey, listen, when people's faith resonates, tell them, celebrate that. Paul's celebrating the gospel and the lives of these people. I think he, he expresses his gratitude in three ways. Let me just mention them. I think, first of all, he expressed his gratitude by way of affirmation. By way of affirmation. He affirmed the fact that their faith was making a difference. So they wouldn't have known. They weren't in Corinth. Uh, they weren't traveling like the Apostle Paul. They were there at the capital city of Rome. They didn't know, but people go to Rome and people leave Rome. And Paul began to hear things like, wow, these people that just traveled from Rome, uh, they've been influenced by those Christians in Rome. And these people that I just met at Miletus or I met at Philippi, these people I, I met way down in Syria. But I tell you, they're telling me all about these people in Rome that made a difference. I'm telling you, uh, Roman believers, keep at it. You're making a difference. People need to hear that. People need that affirmation. But not only did he give them affirmation, I think he gave them a, a word of clarification. And look, look at verse number 8 again, where he said, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. You know, it's, it's easy sometimes for us to take the credit, isn't it? 
Sometimes it's easy for us to say, boy, I'm really grateful that, you know, you came to my evangelism explosion class where I carefully taught you, and I'm glad that you're behaving a little bit more like me now, right? If we're not careful, we can become very man-centered in our ministries. The Apostle Paul was always careful to put in the qualifiers, always careful to put in the qualifiers. I thank my God through Jesus Christ. For you all. Hey, I know where my, my, my bread is buttered. I know who's doing the real work. I know that I'm just a tool of his. Hey, I get it. I get it. And while I affirm you, I want to clarify this is God's work, not mine. This is God's work, not mine. And I, I try to be careful even in the way I refer to our church. Well, you know, at my church, I try not to say that. Now, sometimes I do because I just make, but it's not my church. It's his church. And so we clarify. There was an affirmation. There was a clarification but then there was supplication look at verse number nine one of the greatest ways by which you can express gratitude and appreciation and encourage others is through prayer and the apostle paul said god's my witness god's my witness god knows this whom i serve with my spirit i serve him sincerely in the gospel of a son. Oh, there it is. We're still talking about the gospel. There's our overarching theme, is it not? Uh, I serve him in the gospel of a son that without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. Making requests. He's still talking about his prayer. Verse 10. If by any means now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. Think about that. The Apostle Paul said four things about his prayer. I pray sincere, I pray specifically, I'm praying specifically that God would enable me to get to you. I'm praying, I'm praying consistently. I, I make it night and day, every day. When I go to my prayer time, he said the same thing to Timothy. Every time I pray, night and day, you are part of my prayer. Think about that. Brother Hawtrey, who are the people in your mind's eye that you pray for every day? You pastor a big church, I'm sure you don't pray for every single member in your church every single day, but there's some people you pray for every day. Who are those people? So the Apostle Paul said, hey, Roman believers, I want you to know something. Every single time I pray, I pray for you. Would that be powerful? That's like Jesus saying, Peter, uh, uh, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have all you guys, that he may sift you as wheat, but I'm praying for you, Peter, that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen the brethren. Sometimes people just need to know that we're praying for them in the power of the gospel, and that's what Paul's doing here. It's an encouragement. It's an encouragement. The affirmation, it's an encouragement. The clarification, it's an encouragement. This is not just a business. This is not just a CEO making a difference in an employee's life. No, this is God using Paul to make a difference in your life. And I'm praying for you specifically and consistently. I'm praying for you. I'll tell you the third one as soon as my iPad cooperates. There we go. I, I didn't use, I was so afraid of technology. How many of you use, still use like a, a paper outline? It's just safer, isn't it? And then I, I used the iPad. The first time I ever used an iPad, it crashed on me. It's like, I don't even, I don't know, in the body, out of the body, I cannot tell. I mean, I just, I'm, I don't know what I said that day. So now I just, you know, I just wing it, you know. Specifically, consistently. Sincerely, I serve him in my spirit. That, that's true worship, by the way, in spirit and truth. Now, I, I'm in. This is me. From my, my human spirit, I'm in. I'm in. I love people. I love God. It's sincere. It's specific. It's consistent. It's practical. You know what my prayer is? Lord, help me get there quickly. 
Now, Lord, I'm, according to the will of God, he said. And it's a good thing he added that caveat because the will of God was he got there a lot slower than he wanted to. Right? The Bible says, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. He knew that. He, he wanted to get to Rome quickly, but God had him witnessing to Felix and to Festus and to Agrippa and, and to Centurion on the boat and the people on the island with the snake. And the, I mean, the snake might even got, I don't know. But I'm just saying that God has a different plan than you do. The point is he's praying. And that is an encouragement to the people for whom he's praying. And when it comes to praying for people, let me just say this. Number one, pray for people. Don't just tell them you're praying for them. That's a mistake we all make. Pray for people. But then pray for people and tell them that you're praying for people. But my favorite story about that is a guy that I met years ago. Uh, and he, was, he came to our church in Connecticut. We started a church in Connecticut called, called Foundation Baptist Church. It was an upper room church. I mean, there were like 30 people in the church. A little sandwich board sign that I had painted myself. It looked awful. Okay, but I couldn't afford any more plywood, so that's one. We, that's the sign we went with. And uh, you know, mission. As soon as you're a church, you know, you missionaries, thank God for you, but you have a sixth sense. Okay, like you know, the church starts. You called me the next day. Can I have a meeting? So I'm like, yes, you can have a meeting. So this guy called me as a Filipino pastor uh, from, uh, uh, well, from the Philippines, and uh, <laughs> his name was Brother Vic. And Brother Vic had the most effervescent personality of anyone I'd ever met. He talked, he talked like this. My name is Brother Vic. I am on go for the gospel. I mean, he talked like that in normal conversation. <laughs> so he's talking to me on the phone. I'm holding the phone out here. I said, yeah, sure. That's back when phones had a cord attached to them. I'm like this. So, hey, Brother Vic, we don't have a big church. We want to come preach. Do that. So he came that night to preach. There were maybe 20 people in church. Maybe not even that many. And Brother Vic is like Billy Sunday and the squirrel on over the hedge, like together. Like he is running back and forth, you know, on go for the gospel. He's preaching. We had a great service. After the service went out to eat, I, I said, well, I'll probably never. Took a love offering, but we didn't, you know, couldn't take him out for sport. So he just left. And uh, years later, I'm, I'm in my office in Pennsylvania, pastoring in Pennsylvania. I get a phone call. And the secretary intercoms me. Now, again, if you're like under 40, I don't even know how to explain what an intercom is. It's kind of like a, I, anyway. So I got an intercom and said, hey, you got this guy in the line who wants to talk to you. I said, well, sure. So I put on my pastor voice. This is uh, Pastor Skelly. Hello, Pastor Skelly. It's Brother Vic. I said, I, I knew who you were. Okay. Here's what he said. He said, how is Wanda? Well, Wanda's my wife. I said, well, Wanda's doing great. Yeah, Wanda's doing great. How about Nathaniel? How is Nathaniel doing? Nathaniel's my oldest son. Nathaniel's doing great. Thank you for asking. And Joshua, how is Joshua? Joshua's my second son. Joshua's growing like a weed, Brother Vic. Thank you for asking. And Caleb, how is Caleb? I'm like, Brother Vic, you have an amazing memory. And I'll never forget what he told me. He said, No, Brother Scott, I don't have a good memory. I pray for you and your family every day. Well, you want to talk about an encouragement. I, that happened 25 years ago, and I'm telling you in Pensacola, Florida, about a guy named Brother Vic, who might not even be alive today, an older man, because of the difference he made, just saying, I pray for you every day. So pray for people and tell, tell them you're praying for them. That's Both of those are important. The celebration of the gospel.
Watch this, number three. Not only do I see the summarization of the gospel and then the celebration of the gospel. Notice with me verse number 11. We'll move a little bit more quickly here. Verse number 11. Where the Apostle Paul says, I long to see you. I can't wait to meet you guys. I long to see you. That, and here's why. That, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift. I want to be a blessing in some spiritual way. Not just physically, not just emotionally, but I, I, want to, I want to be used of God to make a difference in your life spiritually to the end that you may be established. I want God to use me to equip you, to foundation you more solidly in the gospel in which you already stand. Verse number 12. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Hey, I want us to have the same walk with God. I want us to have the same passion for souls and passion for Christ. I want there to be a mutuality to our practice of faith. Verse number 13. Now, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that, that oftentimes, I mean, there's been a ton of times that I purpose to come to you. I mean, th- there was this one time I booked the tickets, and I had to cancel them last minute, other time. I'd, I mean, there were, I can't count how many times I wanted to come see you, but every single time something got in the way. I was let hitherto. Something hindered me. Watch this, that I might have some fruit among you as among other Gentiles. Now, I've always wanted to come. I've always wanted to see God do a great work there. Uh, I've always had, uh, it's been a passion in my heart. For whatever reason, God has not allowed it yet. Verse number 14. And he gives now the reason why this obligation is so heavy on his heart. But don't miss it, verse 14. Because verse 14 is that introduction of a thought. Verse 14 is a clarification of what we've already been talking about in verses 11 through 13. He said, I'm debtor. So let, let me, you, you're probably wondering, you know, I don't, we don't even know this guy, Paul. And he's saying things like, oh, man, I've really wanted to come see you. And I've tried many, many times to come see you. And I really want to be there. And I know I can make a difference. I know God can use me. And I really want to see you grow in grace. And it's been all kinds of things that didn't work out so far. But I want to come. He said, why is this guy so passionate? Why is he making such a big deal about this? And Paul said, let me tell you why. Because I really feel like I owe a debt. I'm debtor. Both to the Greeks and the barbarians. Both to the wise and the unwise. To educated people, to uneducated people. To Greek-speaking people, to non-Greek-speaking people. I feel like I have an obligation to rich people and poor people. Men and women, old and young, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile. I just feel like I've got this debt. So as... As much as in me is. You think about that little qualifier. So as much as. What's the last time you could say you did something by that criterion? With everything I am. With everything I have. As much as in me is. I'm ready. I'm, I know what my message is. I know it's in the face of the emperor. I know how dangerous it is. I know I'm the, uh, the euangelion for another kingdom. I understand I can be uh, thought of as an insurrection. I get it, but I'm ready. He said to the Philippians, neither count I in my life dear unto myself. He said that when he was in Rome. Man, I'm ready. No sacrifice is too great. I'm ready. Why? Because I feel this obligation. I sense this debt. I said earlier in the message that obligation and love are not mutually exclusive. Sometimes we, we treat obligation as if it's a kind of a lesser motivation. The love of Christ constraineth me. 
because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So I'm constrained by the love of Christ. Yes, that's wonderful. Okay, but should not the love of Christ itself render an obligation on our part? The fact he loved me, then there's a sense of obligation. Now, here's the thing. When it comes to obligation, here are the, here are the three words I want you to know. When it comes to obligation, number one, the obligation was reciprocal. Now, let me explain what I mean by reciprocity. Okay? Reciprocal, not in this sense. Now, watch me. Not in this sense. Not like, okay, Lord, you, you gave to me your salvation and your grace, so now I owe you. That is not the Christian life. The Christian life is not you paying Jesus back. Otherwise, it's not a gift. Otherwise, it's not grace. That, that's, that, that, that is a bondage way to live. Like, I owe, I owe. No, the point here is it's not this kind of reciprocity. No, it's a linear reciprocity. It's a, okay, it's paying forward. Some of you heard a message I preached recently about a Peter Schorsch. Say, I just like saying that name. Peter, it sounds like I have a lisp. Peter Schorsch. Who was that? He was a guy, listen, in St. Petersburg, Florida, who was listening to his radio, and he heard on the radio that there was a local phenomenon going on. There was a Starbucks right down the road from his house that was hours into a pay-it-forward line. Have you ever been in a pay-it-forward line? Okay, so you go to the, what that means is you, know, you go to the counter and the person said, hey, your order's been paid, paid for. Oh, great. Would you like to pay it forward? Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so, so hundreds of people had participated. This guy heard about it. So what did he do? He got in his car, go down to Starbucks. Listen, I don't care if you pay it for at Starbucks. I'm still not going, okay. But anyway, he goes. He waits in line. Gets up the line. Gets his, he said, now, sir, you got received these two macchiatos, whatever you got. He said, one of them's been paid for by the person in front of you. Would you like to pay it forward? And Peter Schorsch looked at the attendant in the window and said, no. <laughs> no. Number 478. No. You say, man, what a dirty, low-down, good-for-nothing cheapskate Peter Schorsch is, right? I'm going to go slash his tires. Then Peter Shore said this, I want to give you this $100 that I brought to be a blessing to you. What's happened is this has become a phenomenon of guilt now. No one wants to break it, so everyone is doing the minimum thing to buy one drink to pay it forward, and they're just in a perfunctory way keeping this phenomenon going. They've lost the meaning. So I'm going to end it and do something extravagant. I wonder in our churches if our paying it forward, blessing people, just becomes, I just want to do what everyone else does, enough to salve my conscience, to keep me in the game, to compare myself among myself, and we're not really reciprocal. Because when we do unto others, we're doing unto Christ. And Paul said, I just feel this obligation, not an obligation to say, Lord, you want anything. No, Lord, I'm, it's not that. But, Lord, it's, it's like somebody told me, God, there was Stephen, his testimony. There were people that you said in my life, oh, God, I want to be that person for somebody else. That's what I want. That's the obligation. Do you sense that? It's a reciprocal 
obligation. But not only a reciprocal ob- uh, uh, obligation, it's a relational ob- obligation. It's not just a transaction. Sometimes in ministry, we look at people like transactions. We even talk that way. We talk about, we talk about giving units. Like, come on. Like, really? Let's, let's end all that conversation. We don't have giving units. We have eternal souls that people died for. We have people with real needs. We don't look at people that way. Right? So the Apostle Paul said, we imparted unto you the gospel. I love the word impart. He said to the Thessalonians, he goes, we imparted unto you not the word of God only, not the, but also our own souls. Because you were dear unto us. That This wasn't a transaction. This wasn't a one, two, three, read this. This wasn't a, okay, the hour's over. This was, we gave our life. I feel an obligation because people gave their, he gave his life. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwells the love of God in him? My little children, let's not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. That's the point. The Apostle Paul said it's reciprocal. He said it's relational. And then he said, I'm going to use the word, it was reckless. It was reckless in this sense. Hey, I'm ready to go. And I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to face me. He, he already was in a situation in Corinth where he has to head. He has to head east before he goes west. He's got to get on a boat, meet the Ephesian elders. They're going to have a quick powwow because he didn't have much time. He's got to get to Jerusalem. Everywhere he goes, they don't go, Paul. Don't go, Paul. You know what's going to happen, Paul. You might die, Paul. Paul, I, I know I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready to die. Whatever God's will is, I'm ready. I'm going forward for the gospel no matter what happens to me. Now, where, where is that? Where, where's the Jim Elliot recklessness? Where, where's the, let's go, where's the Stephen Trells that are going to Baghdad? Yeah, I think sometimes we're just, we're satisfied with cushy and cozy and comfy. And I'm not saying that God's calling us away from our relatively uh, prosperous American Christianity. But what I'm saying is, boy, our attitude can change, can it? A a new abandon, a new abandon for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember when we used to have give it all? Remember when you just gave it all? Remember those days? Remember before Christianity and the gospel and pastoring became professional? Remember that? But God help us not to be professionals. So it's reciprocal. It's relational. It was reckless. And then finally tonight, you've listened well. Gone too long, but let me just finish it out. The summarization of the gospel, the celebration of the gospel, the obligation of the gospel, but now the proclamation. We've already basically told you about it, but let me just give you the points. Verse number 16. I'm not ashamed. Well, I guess not, Paul. We, we know that by now. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? Because the gospel has inherent power. Because the, the gospel has intrinsic power. I, I know what this can do. I'm not, you can't convince me otherwise. Do you know who I was? Do you know what I did? Like for a living. I killed people. Do you know that? I, I, I took women and children and put them in jail. 
You know that? I was there. I was there when they stoned Stephen. I was there and I was glad. Do you know what the gospel did for me? It changed me. I'm going to tell you something. I'm not ashamed of this because I know what this did in my life. It's his personal testimony. He's not using we. This is what I am saying. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why he said to Timothy, he said, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. That's what he said. Uh, uh, nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. I know who I have believed. I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Listen, I know whom I, I know him. I know what he did. I'm not ashamed. I'll tell you what, preachers, you know what we need? We need a fresh glimpse of what Jesus did for us. That's what we need. I'm not ashamed. The gospel has inherent power. Number two, the gospel is an impartial provision. I love that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. No, it has inherent power. It's the power of God. That's the inherent power. Unto salvation, the dynamic power of God. You know the word dunamis, the dynamic power of God. It can save. It can change a life. It can help anybody. It's the impartation, the imputation of the very gift righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's you receiving the record of the one that fulfilled the law. Why? Because he took your record on the cross. That's what the gospel does. It's the greatest switcheroo of all time. It makes you the person of Jesus in your status. And he took your status. But that's the gospel. It's intrinsic value. It's... uh, it's an impartial provision. It's Jew, Gentile, works for everybody. Works for your mom, works for your dad, works for your cousin, works for a Muslim. Quit looking at people through any other lens other than this is somebody for whom Jesus died. That's the lens. That's the lens. This is somebody. When Carrie and I went to Dunkin' Donuts and talked to Ella, I'm going to tell you something. Ella is somebody for whom Jesus died. She's waiting for us to give her a done book tomorrow. Ella, why? Because she's somebody for whom Jesus died. That's the way we look at people. And so it's the gospel that has inherent power. It's the gospel that's an impartial provision. It's the gospel that demands, listen, it's the gospel that demands individual participation. Do you notice how the Apostle Paul drops the we and, and puts on the I? I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. So I wonder... Now, let's drop the we and put on the I right now. What about you? You say, well, I'm not ashamed. I would talk to anyone about Jesus. Yeah, but do you? Because being ashamed is not an attitude. It's an action. But do you? I read the interesting story about Matthew Emmons. Maybe some of you have heard the story of Matthew. He was uh, an excellent sharpshooter, Olympian. He actually competed in several different Olympics. He went for the first time in 2004 to Athens. He was doing this, uh, this sharpshooting where you'd, it was, it's called the, 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 the three steps. One, you'd kneel and uh, then one time you stand and one time you're on your belly and it's just sharpshooting. Amazing. And I read a little bit about how they do it. They, they actually fire the guns. Some of you hunters probably know this. Between heartbeats. It's amazing that the precision, this guy, 23-year-old accountant, was the best of the best. 
everybody said, this guy's the best of the best. And as it would turn out, uh, he got to the final round, and he was so far ahead, it was just a foregone conclusion that Matthew Emmons was going to win the Olympics. And sure enough, he got down to his position, he aimed and fired and hit the bullseye. I've won the Olympics. But the score didn't come up immediately, and he noticed there was a little bit of a discussion and some hubbub going on, and he said, what's, what's happening? Finally, there was a discussion, and he was brought into, and he said, Mr. Emmons, we're really sorry to inform you of this, but you shot at the wrong target. The targets all have a number, and he had done this. He hadn't done this since he was 14. He always would scope the, the number on the target and then drop down to the bull's eye and fire. For whatever reason, he just aimed at the target next to his. And while he hit the bull's eye, listen to me, it was the wrong bull's eye. And he lost. You know, I think we are collectively a talented group. I think collectively we're a professional group. I think collectively we have some skills that we've developed. But I wonder if we're shooting at the wrong target. I wonder if the bullseye of the gospel is not the target we've been shooting at. And maybe a reaching out conference is really not about how we're going to mobilize our church to reach out. Maybe a reaching out conference needs to be how we mobilize our heart to get right with God and model what it means to win people to Christ again, not being ashamed of the gospel. You've been listening to a message from the Pensacola Christian College Enrichment Retreat. You're welcome to pass this message along to others, but we ask that you do not charge for it without written permission from Pensacola Christian College. If you're a pastor or ministry leader, join us for the next Enrichment Retreat and experience a time of physical rest and spiritual refreshment. To learn more, visit EnrichmentRetreat.com.